0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the New Books in African American Studies podcast, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Jared Biketti, and today I have the tremendous pleasure of interviewing one of the most distinguished historians in the field of African American history and one of my personal academic heroes. Professor Tara W. Hunter is the Edwards Professor of American History and Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University. Professor Hunter will be joining me today to discuss her prize-winning new book, Bound in Wedlock, Slave and Free Black Marriage in the 19th Century, published in 2017 by our friends at Harvard University Press. It will come as no surprise to our listeners who have either read Bound in Wedlock or are familiar with Professor Hunter's scholarship that Bound in Wedlock has received a number of prestigious awards, including the Stone Book Award by the Museum of African American History, The Mary Nicholas Prize by the Organization of American Historians, the Joan Kelly Memorial Prize by the American Historical Association, the Littleton Griswold Prize by the American Historical Association, and the Deep South Book Prize by the Francis S. Summersell Center for the Study of the South. Bound in Wedlock was also a finalist for the Lincoln Prize, awarded by the Gettysburg College and the Gilder Lehrman Institute, as well as the Longman History Today Book Prize. Americans have long viewed marriage between a white man and a white woman as a sacred union, but marriage between African Americans have seldom been treated with the same reverence. This discriminatory legacy traces back to centuries of slavery, when the overwhelming majority of black married couples were bound in servitude as well as wedlock. Through their union, Though their unions were not legally recognized, slaves commonly married, fully aware that their marital bonds would be sustained or nullified according to the whims of their white masters. Bound in Wedlock is the first comprehensive history of African-American marriage in the 19th century. Uncovering the experiences of African-American spouses in plantation records, legal and court documents, and pension files, Tara W. Hunter reveals the myriad ways couples adopted, adapted, revised, and rejected white Christian ideas of marriage. Setting their own standards for conjugal relationships, enslaved husbands and wives were creative and of necessity practical in starting and supporting families under conditions of uncertainty and cruelty. After emancipation, white racism continued to menace Black marriages. Laws passed during Reconstruction, ostensibly to secure the civil rights of newly freed African American citizens, were often coercive and repressive. Informal antebellum traditions of marriage were criminalized, and the new legal regime became a convenient tool for plantation owners to discipline agricultural workers recognition of the right of African Americans to enter into wedlock on terms equal to whites would remain a struggle into the Jim Crow era, and its legacy would resonate well into the 20th century. It is with great honor that I welcome you to the show, Professor Hunter, and thank you so much for agreeing to join me to talk about your magnificent book, Bound in Wedlock.
0: Thank you, Jared, for that lovely introduction and for having me today interviewing my book for your
1: series, New Books in African American Studies. I appreciate it. Uh, To get started, after finishing your groundbreaking first book, Examining the Lives and Labors of Working Class Black Women and the Transition to Freedom in Postbellum Atlanta to Join My Freedom, Southern Black Women's Lives and Labors After the Civil War, did you know that you wanted to write your next book about the topic of African-American marriage?
0: Actually, it took me a while to get to this project. I initially had started out on something very different, um, after finishing *To Joy My Freedom*, I was working on a project more related to the history of race and medicine, and especially gynecology, and thinking about um, African American women as subjects of medical practice, as um, also featured in medical thought. And was really interested in, you know, women like Sarah Bartman from South Africa, who was called the Hottentot Venus, and how medical scientists were using and thinking about black women as specimens. And so I started on that road and basically had came across some roadblocks and decided that maybe I should shift gears a bit. And meanwhile, I had thought about writing an article on the topic of marriage and slavery during the reconstruction period. So when I wrote To Join My Freedom, I I talked about, you know, marriages and family throughout the period of the of the book. Um, But I was especially drawn to the period of Reconstruction. And I basically had some documents left over. I went back to um, when I was revising the dissertation into a book. I went back to that period and went back to um, do some follow up research. And I went to the Freedmen and Southern Society Project and started looking more carefully at the topic of marriage. And as a result, I had these leftover documents. That's the long and short of it. Um, And so I thought, well, maybe I'll write an article on this topic at some point. Um, It was in conversation with my editor that I began to look at that project differently and think about writing instead of an article to write a book really thinking about that period and really trying to understand, you know, the period of, of reconstruction and and the ways in which African-Americans were literally reconstructing their, their families, their marriages and so on. And I decided that I should write a book about it and really cover the whole 19th century. Um, so at the time that I was thinking about this, there were some other books that had come out about marriage, um, Nancy Cott's book on marriage. Nancy Cott was um, on my dissertation committee. Um, Dirk Hartog, who became my colleague at Princeton um, later on, he had just also written a book about marriage. And so there were still these um, gaps in our knowledge about African-American marriage in particular. And so that's what initially led me to the book.
1: I first encountered *Bound in Wedlock* uh, in the summer of two thousand eighteen, uh, as I prepared for my comprehensive examinations in African American history at Rutgers. And I hope my advisor does not hear me say this, but *Bound in Wedlock* was one of the books that, despite the time constraints of students who are, you know, navigating the exam process, that I knew deserved the the time and the energy to be read from cover to cover. And I'm so thankful that I did because I, I feel that after reading it, um, I was able to truly appreciate and cherish all of the feats that you accomplished by writing the book. Um, and I situated the book in, in conversation with some of the books that you alluded to just now, including, um, and, um, Nancy Kotz, but also some, some studies that I think were trickling out in the early 2000s as well, including Wilma Dunaway's book, um, and Brenda Elaine Stevenson's, which had been published shortly before Life uh, in Black and White. And I, it was really interesting to see the connections, but also all of the different innovations that you brought to the conversation, and the ways in which you were able to so seamlessly connect so many dots that were happening in the conversation. Um, But I'm curious what inspired the, I mean, aside from the 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 having these documents that you were able to repurpose for lack of better words, um, what were the gaps in the historiography of African-American history that you hope to fill by writing this book?
0: Um, well, I felt like scholars were kind of taking for granted what marriage meant for African-Americans during slavery without fully interrogating it. So when I started the book, marriage was talked about in the context of family. So there were, you know, sections of books or chapters in books about slavery or even about slave families that dealt with marriage. Um, but really no one had fully interrogated it. Of course, there were some other books that eventually came out that were more specific to different parts of the South that talked about marriage and courtship. Um, and I think also some of that, um, that earlier lit- literature tended to downplay the legal disabilities because African Americans were allowed to marry informally. I think um, historians were not as curious about you know what, what it meant um, that they were not a married, they were not allowed to marry legally. And so what I was really interested in is how marriage. Was really more important to defining slavery. You know, it wasn't just that marriage wasn't allowed incidentally, but it had a very defining role in slavery in terms of denying its um, recognition because it reinforced the permanence of slavery. It reinforced the inheritable status um, of enslaved people. And it was also really striking to me how different the United States was from some other examples that I learned about, um, such as Colonial Mexico. Um, Historian Herman Bennett, who writes about Colonial Mexico, has written about the ways in which um, slave marriage in that context was legally recognized because of the Catholic Church, because of of the, the Spanish crown, basically gave enslaved people rights. Um, true rights to marriage. Whereas in the United States, marriage was only allowed to the extent that slave owners permitted it, and it had no legal recognition. And so I was really struck by that. Um, And the documents really spoke to me, the documents that I referred to in terms of those um, reconstruction documents, because they really, they captured a kind of intimacy that I did not see represented in the literature. Um, a lot of the literature tended to focus more on questions of structure, you know, whether or not black families conform to what was considered ideals within white society, especially the nuclear family. And so I guess the biggest gap for me was thinking about more of the internal dynamics of families. I wanted to talk about both the external constraints, but as well as those internal dynamics. And those documents really showed me An interior view that was more complex, more rich. The gender dynamics seemed more interesting than they had been portrayed, and the the ways in which men's roles had sort of been flattened out in the literature. um, You know, sort of focusing, you know, on their roles. For example, as breadwinners, as opposed to, you know, what did it mean for men to be fathers? What it it means for them to be husbands, or to be brothers, or uncles. And so those documents really spoke to that. And they, they told me that gender was in some ways traditional in other ways that African-Americans were very creative in, in adapting gender to fit their own needs in the time um, of reconstruction and going back into the slavery period. So those were some of the ways that I thought about the literature differently.
1: The introduction of Bound and Wedlock addresses the controversial topic of the African-American family in 20th century American life and society. Um, For our listeners who are not as familiar with the political and social debates that surrounded the African-American family at this time, why did the subject garner so much attention in the mid-20th century? And how did these topics and debates inspire some of the first comprehensive studies of American slavery written in the 1970s and 1980s that you alluded to Uh, in your response to the last question.
0: Well, I think one way to look at it is that there's never been a time when African-American families have not been controversial. They've always been seen as problems um, in American society because they're always seen as failing to live up to the norms. Um, They're always seen as deficient. But the controversy really heated up in the mid-1960s when Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who was the assistant secretary of labor under President Lyndon Johnson, um, wrote a report which became known as the Moynihan Report about the status of the black family in American society at the time. And he made some claims that black families were dysfunctional, that they were matriarchal, meaning that they were dominated by women, which was, you know, against the norms of patriarchy that they were pathological um, and that we could trace those qualities back to slavery. So slavery was really the cause that slavery had destroyed the family and that those legacies were still present in the mid 20th century. And so that generated a lot of pushback from historians, um, most explicitly from Herbert Gutman, historian Herbert Gutman wrote a book really directly, you know, challenging Moynihan's assertions about slavery. Um, historian John Blassingame um, also, and others as well. Um, and what's interesting is that they were also building on the work of earlier scholars like W.E.B. Du Bois, who had written about the Black family based on his conferences at Atlanta University in 1908, as well as a Philadelphia Negro, which he wrote in 18. 18- Ninety-six And E. Franklin Frazier, the sociologist who wrote about the Black family in the 1930s. So that's sort of the, the ways in which there was a kind of resurgence of interest in the Black family in the mid-20th century.
1: You, in the beginning of Bound in Wedlock, you not only mention some of the misconceptions about African-American families in marriage that you hope to correct or disprove by writing Bounded Wedlock, many of which you just alluded to uh, a moment ago. But in in a lot of ways, the the vestiges of these myths um, have survived to the present era. Um, There are often the representations of African-American families as being pathological and as not living up to what our inherently unrealistic standards due to the weight of institutionalized white supremacy. And I'm curious, in the course of writing this book and also in presenting your work, um, how these ideas have been not only presented in the scholarship, but also the feedback that you've received from readers and critics uh, about your ability to connect these conversations, both between the past and in the present moment.
0: Well, I think it's it's always interesting to me that people really want to talk about what's happening, you know, right now. You know, they're more interested in talking about the Black family or Black families, you know, in the 21st century um, than the 19th century. So I, I always get questions. Often the first questions I get when I talk about the book, when I give talks um, to the public, especially, you know, is, you know, what about today? What does this mean for us today? And so um, this is, you know, partly I was, you know, partly inspired by some of these contemporary concerns and debates. And so the book is about the 19th century, but I end with an epilogue about the 20th century, Um, because one of the things that also I wanted to to discuss and challenge is this idea that um, that, that we can draw a straight line from slavery up to the present. Um, so to challenge that idea that slavery is to blame for current day patterns and to show that a lot has happened you know, in between slavery and present day. And so I talk about how, if we look at, you know, obviously slavery challenged the marital relationships of African-Americans in lots of very profound ways. Um, But what we see is by the end of the 19th century, going into the 20th century, African-Americans are adopting legal formalized marriages overwhelmingly. And so by 1900, you have African-Americans marrying slightly more than, than white Americans because they're also marrying at younger ages. And so how do we get from nearly universal marriage in 1900 to the reversal of that pattern at the end of the 20th century and in the beginning of the 21st century, where African Americans are not marrying um, to the same degree um, and marrying considerably less than white Americans? And so it's important that we look at, you know, what's happened in the course of the 20th century rather than blaming slavery. Um, And part of, you know, what happens when we blame slavery, we throw up our hands and say, well, there's nothing we can do about it. But in fact, the research shows um, sociologists have provided data showing, for example, how much marriage rates correlate with the economy, with employment patterns for men, especially um, so lots of things have inter, intervened, um, especially in the mid 20th century. Not to mention the fact that marriage rates for everyone is going down; It's just going down much more dramatically for African Americans. Um, but permanent unemployment is a really key factor that that number has gone up every decade since the mid century. Um, we're familiar with, you know, increasingly with mass incarceration and. The ways in which that has impacted people's ability to marry to to mate Um, and so and so that's part of the work that i want the book to do is to talk about you know what has happened historically that we need to pay attention to as, as opposed to saying it it's you know it's it we should all we should lay it all at the feet of slavery um, we've undergone a lot of changes since slavery that have had a more direct relationship to disrupting marriage patterns.
1: You introduced your readers uh, in the introduction of Bound and Wedlock to your ancestors, Moses and Ellen Hunter, who were the first intra-racial couple to marry in your paternal bloodline. Uh, I found this inclusion to be very touching to not only the history that you were writing, but how you yourself were able to reconstruct your own family's history and their experiences establishing lives beyond bondage in the decades following the Civil War. Would you mind sharing with our listeners the story of Moses and Ellen Hunter's lives and relationship, as well as your decision to include them in the introduction of this beautiful book that you've written?
0: Sure. So Ellen and Moses are my paternal great-great-grandparents. Moses was born free in 1835 in South Carolina, though he would be enslaved later um, by the time of the Civil War. And Ellen was born enslaved in 1850 in Elberton, Georgia, and that's where they met and married. So Ellen is actually remembered by um, family members who are still alive today. She's specifically remembered by my family's historian. I'm not actually my family's historian, so I always have to give credit to my my dad's cousin Bruce, who's a retired engineer who actually did a lot of the research, most of the research um, for our family tree. And so basically he was able to trace back the you know the earliest known ancestors from Ellen and Moses going back to two women, Sally Hunter on Moses' side, um, who lived in Africa, was born around 1790, at some point moved to Jamaica before coming to South Carolina. And then on Ellen's side, Melinda Morrison, who was born in Henry County, Virginia in 1775. And so I was really struck by... When I looked at, as I you know talked to my cousin Bruce about the research, what I saw was the preponderance of coerced interracial pairings up until Ellen and Moses. So Ellen and Moses become the first intraracial couple who's allowed to you know marry legally. I hadn't initially intended to necessarily use their story in the book. Um, I had the a copy of the marriage certificate. Um, so before I actually knew much about the family tree, um, I had I had the copy of the marriage certificate, which I kind of use, you know, as a source of inspiration, posted on my my wall. But you know, as I got deeper into the project, I realized that this document was you know it's personal, but it was also historical. It had value for telling this larger story, that it's representative of so many other stories in African-American history. And, you know, the, the fact that it was a certificate from the 1870s, from the reconstruction period also, you know, again, reinforced those documents that I had recovered before. And just the, you know, the, the fact that many couples were doing what Ellen and Moses were doing in that period in formalizing their relationship. And so Ellen and Moses were, um, they were informally married just shortly after the civil war, it seems, but they didn't get legally married until around 1873. And it's my interpretation as a historian is that it has to do with the arrival of a black minister at their church. That, That marks their marriage, their formal marriage.
1: The, the way that you've organized Bound in Wedlock um, is it, true to the subtitle of the book, but in a lot of ways you go well before the 19th century and discussing some of the uh, patterns and laws governing slavery that date back to the colonial period, even 17th century Virginia, um, and which is important for understanding the story that you tell in Bound and Wedlock. Um, and, and in the beginning chapters of the book, you discuss what marriage, uh, what marriage. Um, constituted for the enslaved prior to the Civil War. And the beginning chapters piece together that complex and evolving history of African-American marital love and the enduring struggles of slaves, fugitive slaves, former slaves, and free people of color to sustain these relationships in the face of the anti-Black oppression and violence that uh, existed uh, under slavery. And you read on page seven that, quote, marriage was by no means synonymous with freedom, but slaves and free blacks understood that their futures as liberated people were less certain without the guarantee of marriage or the ability to choose marriage or not. And that marriage, quote, was at the foundation of liberation because it had been at the foundation of racial subordination, end quote. So I'm curious if you could discuss how did the enslaved define and understand marriage in the context of slavery?
0: Well, I guess the best way to describe it is that they thought about marriage um, in terms of gradations of intimate relationships. Um, They were very creative and adaptive in sort of dealing with the circumstances of their vulnerabilities and the potential breakups of their relationships beyond their control. So there were various relationships that they recognized. Marriage was sort of the pinnacle. Um, sweethearting was a phrase that was used to describe more short-term connections. Um, these were usually with younger people. Um, they were not necessarily, you know, monogamous. Um, they may or might, may, may have, or maybe not have involved having children. Um, those relationships could grow into something more, but those were sort of the, um, you know, sort of the the sort of courtship level relationships that maybe got beyond courtship as we normally define it. Then there was a term that they used called taking up, which could look a lot like marriage. Um, sometimes it could be long-term, but not necessarily. These were u- usually monogamous. People usually shared a residence. Um, they even sometimes share the same surnames. They were likely to be you know, known within their communities um, but there's usually no ceremony. And then there was marriage was, you know, again, it's it's the, you know, sort of the highest level of commitment, expectations of monogamy, long term, you know, to the extent that they had control over that, um, often involves some kind of ceremony, even if it was just, you know, saying that, you know, they were recognized as husband and wife. They were sanctioned by slave owners, by the community, by sometimes by the church, clergy. So those are sort of the the terms that people use to describe their intimate relationships.
1: I was really impressed by the ways in which you were able to capture how complex these relationships were and how nimble the enslaved had to be to these types of intimate relationships uh, with the realization that the um, external forces could and ultimately, unfortunately would, um, sever these relationships more often than not. Um, and I'm curious, what was your experience when you were going through the archives, ex-slave interviews, the diaries of plantation owners, and the other types of sources that you cite throughout the early chapters of the book um, in reading these histories and in, in the ways in which they not only were narrated to you, but the ways in which you used them to tell us more about these various relationships that the enslaved established under bondage.
0: Um, So can you just repeat what the question is?
1: Sure. Essentially how they, these relationships themselves were discussed by the enslaved Mm -hmm. and how how you bring those to life in the book for our, for, for listeners who have not read the book yet.
0: Yeah. So I think one of the things that was really striking to me when I started working on the project or even as I got, you know, had gotten deeper into it is, you know, going back and reading slave narratives I'd read before, but with fresh eyes, you know, thinking about the project and just noticing the ways that people talked about marriage and the kind of trepidation that was often involved in their considerations. And, you know, they carefully weighed, you know, the pros and cons of whether they should get married or not. You know, you know what would be the consequences of, of you know, sort of getting married. You know, given the disabilities, given the fact that they would not have control uh, of their children. You know that women would be sexually violated. So it's very interesting how they often weighed those consequences, and you know, sort of carefully decided whether or not to wed, and also how much marriage and intimacy was a motivating factor for escaped enslaved people. So if you go back to, you know, those narratives like, um, William and Ellen craft, I mean, they talk about the, the, the fact that they were motivated because they didn't want to have children in the context of slavery. They, they didn't want to face the violations of their marriage under slavery. And so that they, they first thought, well, maybe we shouldn't get married. And then they thought, well, let's marry and then plan our escape. And that's, so it's really interesting how much, how desperate people were to have, you know, normal, unencumbered um, marital relations that they would actually plan um, their escapes in order to achieve those, those goals.
1: You're right. And chapter one of Bound and Wedlock that quote, marriages for the enslaved were not inviolable unions, but an institution defined and controlled by the superior relationship of master to slave. What role did masters play in the governance of slave marriages? And could you please discuss how you developed the concept of the third flesh to historicize this fundamentally violent and unequal power dynamic?
0: So slave owners had absolute control. They decided whether or not um, African-Americans could marry, they decided if they could, you know, live together, they decided if and when they were allowed to visit one another, if one spouse lived off the plantation, which often happened, um, typically men lived, you know, apart from their families and came to visit the women and and children. Um, They decided whether to sell couples, you know, split them apart, They interfered with disputes between couples, you know, they sexually violated women. So in every way they had control. But I also say that marriage was a chosen emotional bond, that slave owners had the power to dictate, you know, and even sometimes coerce people to marry, to live together as couples. But those were not necessarily marriages of the heart. And African-Americans had to decide for themselves what marriage meant to them. And so sometimes slave owners had one idea of what marriage was. um, And slave people had their own ideas of what marriage was. And so, and those two things weren't always aligned. In terms of the third flesh, I was really trying to explore the general history of marriage and think about, you know, what does marriage mean historically? And going back to those biblical ideas about, you know, two flesh becoming one, I was really struck by those kind of metaphors that are often part of Christian ideas about marriage, which in our society have been very influential. And also looking at feminist theory and thinking that in, the, you know, the way in which feminists describe, you know, the merging of the two is actually, you know, subsumed under the one where the one is the man. And so keeping those things in mind, I wanted to talk about well what's really different about the marriages of enslaved people is that it's not just two. It's never just two becoming one. There was always a third arbiter. There was that, you know, that that other party and not God as in the Christian view, but you know, that third party Assuming the supreme role um, as a mortal person, as a mortal man, and so that's where the third flesh came from. Thinking about like that, the interference that slave owners played in the relationships of what is considered a sacred, you know, bond between two people, and you know, at the time um, of the nineteenth century, to you know, heterosexual people a man and a woman married to each other
1: you i'm curious you you talk a lot about the the role that masters played in um regulating um these relationships uh except for those that you you just mentioned and thank you for bringing that up about the 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 chosen emotional uh bond that enslaved people developed for one another but i'm curious if you came across references to mistresses in the South who played an active role in not only deciding whether certain individuals' marriages would be recognized by these women, but also whether or not they would allow the enslaved to have official marriage ceremonies performed by a minister. Um, I'm thinking a lot about the work of Stephanie Jones Rogers and the tremendous interventions that she's made in thinking about uh, white women as active participants in the economy of slavery. And so I'm curious if you ha- came across any of those references in the course of writing and researching this book.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. <clears throat> yes. Stephanie Jones Rogers book is really wonderful. Um, I would say that the women, slave owning women come into play in marriages. Um, you see them being more, more vocal around the actual ceremonies so in some cases, um, they, you know, they essentially hosted the slave owning family hosted, you know, of some kind of ceremony. It might be held in their parlor, might be held out in the yard. There might be, you know, a kind of a supper cake, you know, dessert of some of some kind. And so I saw them mentioned in documents where they're, they're talking about, you know, those ceremonies where they're relaying information to family members in their letters. They're commenting, you know, about, you know, what's happening on the plantations and the farms and noting, you know, what's happening with enslaved people and who's getting married. And, you know, they often make sometimes, you know, kind of snide comments about those relationships. And so that's where they, you know, that's where they came into play. I didn't find a lot of sort of more direct sort of power dynamics like the kind that Stephanie talks about in her book. Okay.
1: The second chapter uh, of Bound and Wedlock traces the legal history of slavery and the contentious issue of slave marriage in early America. So I'm wondering if you could um, discuss briefly um, whether or not slave marriages were expressly prohibited by statute in the antebellum South. And could you discuss how slaveholders often would use the logic of property rights to invalidate the civil personhood and standing of the enslaved with regard to marriage?
0: Yeah. So basically um, I, when I first started writing the book, I began with what is now chapter one in the book and decided I couldn't write chapter one because there was a question that I couldn't really figure out from the existing literature, which is what was slave law on marriage? Like what did the law actually say about marriage? And I ended up on this kind of wild goose chase looking for actual statutes because some of the literature was a little bit misleading in suggesting that there were actual statutes um, that prohibited enslaved people from marrying. So I I actually at the time had a research assistant and had her go and find me all the antebellum statues and was just like having a hard time finding any statues. Then I went back to an article by legal historian, um, Margaret Burnham. Um, She had written this article on basically slave law as it relates to families. And I realized that she had written in a footnote that the law pertaining to marriage under slavery was not statutory, but common law. And that's a huge thing. It shouldn't have been in the footnotes. It should have been, you know, really <laughs> in the body of the text of the article, because it's a huge point mm. that there were laws against slaves getting married, but that common law was what judges essentially um created, constructed out of their arguments, um, where they had to make a ruling on a matter where slave marriage came into, into um, became relevant, civil cases, criminal cases. And so they, what they did is they articulated the legal reasons why slaves could not be married in the context of the law, why they could not have rights that superseded the rights of slave owners, that slave owners had, you know, superior property rights, that those rights could not be violated. And so that led me, you know, down a path, which I never recovered from, of, you know, reading tons of court cases, reading tons of legal treatises. And so I, I, you know, I ended up having to deal with the law a lot more than I anticipated when I first started the book.
1: It's interesting how not only the the logic of property rights in, in common law was weaponized as a tool to not recognize enslaved marriages, but also in the context of the small population and, and the growing population, I should say, of free people of color, particularly in the upper South in the antebellum era. And so it's interesting that you're able to capture that emancipation from slavery did not necessarily guarantee former slaves augmented civil rights that whites were bound to respect. I'm, I'm thinking of the really remarkable historical source that you interpret at the beginning of chapter um, chapter three um, that was written by a justice, I believe of the Georgia Supreme court. Was it justice Lumpkin or was he from Louisiana? Yes, okay. Mm-hmm. And that manumission was in itself the only right that people of color were entitled to. Um that there would be no enforcement of their citizenship rights, um, particularly with regard to the ability to enter into contracts and thus the right to legally marry. And in chapter three, you narrate the range of assaults and restrictions that quasi free persons of color faced in their quest to solidify their marital statuses and, and more importantly, to keep their families intact during this period, this very volatile time in American history. And I found chapter three to be such a powerful reflection on the precariousness of freedom for African-Americans in pre-Civil War America, um, both North and South. Mm -hmm. You you write that, quote, freedom at best was a process, not an achievement that could be taken for granted. And, end quote, I really enjoyed reading chapter three, particularly your ability to situate freedom along a continuum versus a, a, a strictly linear line. And throughout the chapter, you illustrate that progress and retrenchment were flip sides of the same coin. And I think you captured this incredibly well in the context of slave marriage. But with that being said, I was hoping that you could um, discuss some of the challenges and restrictions that mixed status couples um, faced in their attempts to wed and how white society's tolerance for these types of unions receded over the course of the early 19th century
0: yeah, so mixed status couples were enslaved and free people married to each other. Um, in some cases, these relationships were were prohibited by law. Um, so in North Carolina, for example, there was a law against these relationships. and i I found these boilerplate forms in the archives that were used to prosecute violations of the law. And that only told me, That there were enough of these violations that they actually had a form, you Mm. know, in in these amongst their legal um, record keeping to um, prosecute individuals. But obviously lots of people were able to get away with it. Um, In many respects, these marriages were functionally like enslaved marriages because the enslaved couple kind of defined the relationship. They could, you know, they didn't have legal recognition. Um, They depended on. The you know the the slave owner to 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 basically allow them forbearance in as a couple um, to share residency if you know or visits if not residency. Um, so slave owners basically had a lot of power in those relationships. Um, you know couples could be split apart. The enslaved person could be sold away, um, and they were at the mercy of slave owners too because they could make deals which they often did to buy the person out and you know put forward money to do that and then those deals could be reneged on and then they, they didn't have any kind of recourse of you know getting their money back getting the slave owner to basically live up to the kind of um, arrangement or deal that they had made verbally so they you know their their fates were tied together um, more closely together, the the fates of free blacks and enslaved people were tied very closely together. Um, as a result of of their marriages,
1: I'm curious. You, you talk about the the examples later in the chapter about same status couples, so couples who were both free, um, and, and I'm wondering whether or not you know for our listeners that and you discuss it really well in the book, and it's it's such a powerful chapter. But were free couples any more successful in their bids to wed or have their marriages recognized in the law?
0: In general, they were more successful, but free Black people were not guaranteed um, any rights. So going back to Justice Lumpkin, for example, he basically said that in his Supreme Court case, in a case that came before the court in Georgia in 1853. So this is, you know, before Dred Scott, he writes a Dred Scott-like decision, basically saying that black people have no rights that white people are bound to respect. He doesn't use that language, but that's the sum of his ruling. Mm-hmm. And he says that they don't have, the only right they have is to their freedom. They don't have the right to marry. They don't have any other rights. Um, and so free people were up against the fact that by and large, they were able to marry um, largely undisturbed, but that it wasn't guaranteed. Um, not to mention that it was often challenging for them to to wed, to form households economically. Um, and then you have you know an issue with you know numbers of free people and disproportionate numbers of free women in certain parts of the spout, the South, especially in the lower South, where. Um, more women tended to be in the free Black populations because they were manumitted on an individual level, often based on their relationships with white people. And so you have a disproportionate number of single women within the free Black population. Um, so those were the challenges that even free Black people face.
1: One of the It was, it was very sad to read and very, I think revelatory to kind of bring together the, the weight of the slaveholding South's commitment to slavery and its unwillingness to recognize even the slightest form of, of civil rights for free persons of color was that you discuss later in the chapter, several instances in which freed persons had to then sell themselves back into slavery in order to save enough money to purchase the freedom of other individuals, um, whether it meant that it would temporarily prevent them from being separated from their loved ones who may or may not have been subject to the domestic slave trade and being sold for their self. And it, it, was, it reminded me of, of Moses's experience, your paternal great-great-grandfather, who you, you mentioned was sold back, or in some way or another, was forced back into bondage before the Civil War. Um, And I'm wondering if you could discuss, was this commonplace? Like there were several instances that you mentioned in, in chapter three of the book, but it, it seemed like it was far more common than we may know that it actually was, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So this was one of the, probably the areas that I probably knew the least about when I started the book and was perhaps, you know, really shaken by like how much free blacks and free blacks married to enslaved people, um, how much they suffered in this period. And so basically what the South did, especially in the South was to pass, you know, ever more restrictive laws in the antebellum period to try to ferret out as many free black people as possible and to associate blackness with slavery as much as possible. And so they passed these laws basically expelling free black people from the state. So if they were manumitted, they were then required to, to leave the state within a certain period of time. So you have all of these free people, you know, gaining their freedom, and then they're petitioning state legislatures in order to remain in the state. Um, and, you know, most of those attempts were unsuccessful. Um, and then the other option that they had were was so-called voluntary slavery. So some states passed these laws that basically allowed free people to stay if they would submit themselves or resubmit themselves. So in some cases, these were freeborn people who were, um, who had to submit to slavery for the first time, or people who had been manumitted had to decide whether they wanted to give up their freedom or not. Um, And what was striking is how, how it wasn't, you know, There weren't tons of these cases, but there were cases in which African-Americans were willing to do that in order to stay with family. And it just tells you how much they valued marriage, how much they valued their families, Um, that freedom didn't quite look as good when you had to be separated from your family. Um, It was far more illusory for African-Americans in any way. And so they were you know, sometimes willing to make that sacrifice. And of course, that just reinforced the idea that, you know, it's kind of an absurd thing, a kind of sinister ploy used by um, white society to reinforce white supremacy and to eradicate the antebellum Black population and just, you know, sort of reinforce the idea that African-Americans are not equipped for freedom and that they really don't want to be you know, want to be free. So it's a really tortuous situation to be in where you had to choose. Do you choose your family or do you choose to be free? And sometimes people chose one way and decided, I, I talk about the story of this one man who was freed, he moved away, and then he came back. He decided he really didn't, he couldn't live without his wife. And so he came back and submitted himself to this voluntary, so-called voluntary slavery, in order to be with his family.
1: In in the later chapters of the book, you move chronologically um, towards the Civil War era. And chapter four was admittedly my favorite chapter of the book. Um, I found that your expertise in African American labor history really shine brightly in this section, and and the way in which you fold the themes of gender and sexuality into your conversations about labor during the Civil War and the use of of marriage as the instrument that the Union Army and the federal government were mobilizing to not only implement their own ideas and ideologies of about what uh, white bourgeois um, ideas of marriage and the the structure of marriage as being a monogamous union between a man and a woman versus these serial relationships that you discuss African Ameri- enslaved African Americans had, out of necessity, had to adhere to due to the constraints of slavery. Um, but it, it's quite interesting the way in which you discuss the unseen labors of African American women that often are go unseen in terms of conversations about the, the Civil War. You know, the, often we are greeted by conversations about the sacrifices that african-american men made as soldiers uh, on the battlefields but recently um i think that the, the tides of this conversation are changing thankfully uh with work by scholars like amy taylor as well as the volia Glymph and crystal Feemster, um and uh stephanie mccurry uh, as well as your this chapter in bounded wedlock and as you show, the success of the Union army and the federal government literally rested upon the shoulders of these formerly enslaved women and men. And it's, it's so compelling the way in which you're able to bring your readers into the interiors of these contraband camps and seized plantations and other military outposts throughout the South that were established by invading Union troops. And... As readers, we witness the sometimes contentious interactions between fugitive slave contrabands, as they were known, and army officials, chaplains, and northern missionaries over the issue of marriage. And so I was hoping that you could please speak to the sacrifices that not only African-American men, but that African-American women made as wives and daughters and the female kin of African-American soldiers, but also, and more importantly, as laborers uh, in instrumental figures in the greater war effort and as laborers who were repeatedly not compensated for the sacrifices that they made for this war for liberation, as they should have been.
0: Yeah. So they were, you know, they played very critical roles, as you've mentioned. Um, They were very instrumental in helping the United States win the war because of their services. Their services were not always welcome. And we see this very early on. You know when the first contraband camp was created at Fort Monroe, Virginia. Um, you know just months after the Civil War started. You know the first men, the first people who fled were men, but soon after that, you saw um, we saw women and children, families heading to those contraband camps, elderly people, and basically the U S military was flummoxed, you know, literally Butler was like, well, what am I supposed to do with these women? Um, do I send them back? Do I make use of their services? And so there was a lot of skepticism, outright opposition, sometimes hostility directed at these women, but they, you know, they were determined. They saw themselves as playing important roles. They volunteered their labor. They worked around the camps. They, Around the soldiers' camps, they cook, they nurse, they were scouts. They provided information. They were, you know, formally employed by the military um, as civilian workers, as you know, eventually as teachers, as nurses, as cooks. And then they played a very instrumental role on those confiscated plantations, um, the plantations that were taken over by northern entrepreneurs and federal officials. Um, the, you know, the those people running the plantations, they wanted, you know, they wanted a workforce of mostly men. But in fact, men were leaving to go join the army once they were allowed to join the army. So you have this disproportionate number of women basically being left behind, you know, working on those plantations. So their labor became quite crucial. And, you know, sometimes entrepreneurs were quite Um, open in their hostility, especially at the outset of hiring these women. And then some of them would begrudgingly acknowledge, you know, that these women actually fulfilled important roles. And so it's very striking to see how how Black men were treated versus Black women that, you know, white allies from the North um, very quickly started to talk about Black men's service to the army. You know the sacrifices they were they were making, especially once they became soldiers, Um, and so they were welcomed into the into the 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 ideal ideals of male citizenship um, fairly quickly because of their service, because of their sacrifices on the battlefields. Whereas women weren't given the same recognition; they didn't have direct access to citizenship. They got their citizenship through men, um, through you know their husbands or their fathers um and so it's it's striking how that how those you know gender ideas started to to really impact how black women versus black men black women versus black men were perceived in the context of the civil war
1: i think one of the most striking quotes uh regarding what you just mentioned was from president Lincoln himself, where he wrote that quote, they in speaking to uh, women, children, and elderly enslaved people who were viewed as a nuisance to the union armies and uh, as a drain on their resources. He, he said um, that quote, they better be set to digging their subsistence out of the ground. Exactly. And exactly. I think that that so succinctly captures this sentiment and the, um, the treatment of african american women when in all actuality that they were lining the coffers of the us treasury
0: exactly and there's a kind of contradiction that i also talk about with respect to marriage and labor because the federal government is trying to basically shore up you know african american families trying to regularize marriages at the same time they want you know women to be to, to basically continue to do the kind of work that they did as enslaved people and so they don't want women to, to basically assume what would be considered traditional roles of wives. You know, they want them in the fields. They want them working on, you know, the commercial um, commodities, not working in their gardens. And so there's, there are these, you know, these, this kind of tension, these conflicts around women's labor that really start to fire up in the context of the Civil War.
1: I'm... And moving forward uh, in the period, in the Reconstruction period, um, I was hoping that you could discuss um, briefly how marriage was retooled and then later weaponized as a punitive instrument of racial and social control in the post-Civil War South.
0: Yeah. So once African-Americans achieve, you know, the rights to marry, you know, obviously they gain new benefits. But they also gained some new encumbrances. They were, you know, they were allowed to protect the integrity of their relationships without interference from outsiders. To, you know, men gained rights as heads of households. Parents gained rights of uh, controlling their children. They gained the right to love the people they chose to love, to reject those that they didn't want to be in relationship with. And that was really the rub: that they gained the right also not to marry and so um so there was a level of coercion so african americans tended to embrace you know marriage on their own but there was also a level of coercion because some people felt like they didn't need to um have a legal document to sanction their relationships that they liked the relationships as they were or had been in the context of slavery and so you see um laws being passed in the south um that imposed penalties on African-Americans who didn't marry legally. Um, some states basically require people to take an active stance, going to the courthouse, filling out a form saying that they were legally married. Other states sort of de facto decided you, know, you were married to the person that you were in relationship with in the context of slavery. Um, but failure to conform led to penalties, jail time, fines, um, coerced labor. Um, and you see, you know, landowners also getting into it with their, um, now, you know, ex-slave workers, you know, working on plantations. And so you see rules being set up that require nuclear families to sign contracts, um, to work as sharecroppers, um, marital infractions are being punished as crimes, um, And so this, you know, the common law marriage, the kind of informal marriages that were once the norm, suddenly are becoming criminalized. And it's also interesting that even in this period, many white common people were in these informal relationships, but they were treated with more respect than African Americans um, who had the same kind of relationship. So among white people, common law marriage was seen as, you know, kind of a sign of respect for the institution of marriage, whereas for African-Americans, it was seen as a dereliction of duty, you know, a failure to live up to the respectable standards of of society. And so we see these ironies um, once the right of marriage, you know, becomes law that African-Americans are now faced with being punished for behaviors that were basically the norm before and required. As the norm,
1: it was interesting to see the ways in which you discuss, uh, you know, the in in white southern society, the the quote unquote the failures of African Americans to conform to these nuclear um, models or the monogamous family unit. Um, It was, I think, an interesting addition to conversations um, that have been going on among scholars of the post reconstruction South about the types of laws that were specifically used to target African-Americans and to erode what small, um, advances were made during the civil war period, but also this constant negotiation uh, of African-Americans of deciding whether or not to conform to these laws and the role that this played in the, the rise of convict leasing and, uh, Punitive Jim Crow injustice in the South in the years after the Civil War. Yes. I'm one of the final questions I wanted to ask you, Professor Hunter, was what do you hope the shelf life of Bound and Wedlock will be for the generations of scholars and readers who come into contact with your book? What what do you hope are the biggest takeaways?
0: Well, I think I hope that people will, you know, first of all, read the book and, you know, learn about the history of African-American marriages, African-American families. I don't think we can truly understand the history of slavery without understanding um, the constraints that the denial of legal rights and the ways in which um, family matters were subject to um, oppressive structures in, in the context of slavery And also the ways in which african-americans struggled against those strictures you know all the things that they did to make their relationships meaningful despite the constraints all the ways that they fought for um their families and the rights to have families the right to to decide who they should be intimate with and who they should not be intimate with and so understanding that resilience that creativity that um that will to survive and how much families played a role in that I think is really, um, you know, one of the most important takeaways that I hope that people will will carry with them.
1: Well, thank you so much again, Professor Hunter, for joining me today.
0: Sure. Thank you so much for having me and um, interviewing me for your series. I really appreciate it.